0: We're still in the Book of James. I think we might get through Chapter One today, and it it 's taking a lot of time. I shared some of this with you um, before worship. I had a picture of myself like this you know this speaking guy that 's just so powerful with words and and message delivering that you could just bring like like somebody who's the most awesome singer or something you know and they could just so powerfully move an audience and and the lord saw my pride all over that and he stripped me down to nothing i mean some of you've been here for the whole time you know how bad it was at the beginning i I mean maybe you don't think it's much better and you're still here god bless your faithfulness but i couldn't i couldn't i couldn't and what i've come to learn is that there's some guys he can do that with because they won't find their pride in that but that wouldn't have been a good call for me matter of fact um Many of you have told me that, that my call is teacher even more than pastor. And the first couple of times we were ever asked to teach, like nobody came to the class. And I actually said this. I don't know what the Lord has planned for me, but it's not teacher. Well, it turns out, you know, that he really had that planned for me. Um, and sometimes you can't see it. Anyway, my point is, as I'm, I'm, I'm reading, and I have read the first chapter of James. I mean, if it's, if it's once, it's 300 times or more, 500 times, 1,000 times in the last few weeks, trying to understand, Lord, what is it that you want me to say? I don't want to just regurgitate. I mean, what is it that you would have me exposit out of these scriptures? And and last week, I thought it was it was pretty interesting, the thing about um, about um, temptations as, as a me- measurement for us to see our love or the lack of our love for God. Um, this week, he kept, kept feeling impressed, to make sure that the foundation is laid, the foundation is laid, the foundation is laid. So I'm going to start off with that. I, I just want you to understand that I don't see myself as somebody special. I, I, I see myself as one little cog in a wheel that's the body of Christ, and, and you know maybe a little wheel that's us at church on the street. And today's service is such a beautiful representation of what I think God wants from his church. I don't think he's looking to have, you know, God bless Joel Osteen, there's probably... There's probably thousand people in his church that are walking out their thing, but but you know forty thousand people and one man of God, man of God, the pastor. He's he's just one little piece of the puzzle. No greater, no less, no more favor, no less favor than every single buddy else that gets their heart moved for Lisa, or gets their heart moved with a word about the camels, or or feels led to pray for somebody, or goes and gives somebody a hug, or prophesies, or whatever, shares a testimony. I think this is what, and I'm not jamming up anybody else i'm you know not just a uh whatever i'm just I just think that however it is that the church is supposed to all walk in the giftings of the of the Lord, bringing about the edification and the building up of the church, so to that end, I wanted to just read to you my job, you know, in the hat that I wear that's pastor at church on the street is reflected in ephesians four twelve and 13 and you're, you're familiar with this but i'm going to read it to you anyway and it starts in the middle of a sentence so for, forgive me but it's apostle the prophet the evangelist the pastor and the teacher are gifts from jesus now the scripture for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of christ until we all attain the unity of the faith And of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Well, that's quite a big thing, isn't it? And so my piece, along with the others that would sit in the offices, I guess, I don't know, but the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, with all those giftings from heaven, is to be an equipper, an encourager of the church so that all the stuff that we just experienced is what's happening so that all of the body is active in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, bringing about the will of God and the building up until we reach that level of maturity that's the fullness of Christ. And we've got still just a tiny little bit of headroom yet there before we reach the fullness of Christ. All right. As review from last week... um, I went back to the beginning of James because we've been for so many weeks, we've been in the very beginning of James that sometimes you lose the context of the, of the bigger course of Scripture. So I read from verse 2 on through the part that I finished with last week. And, and basically the gist of that was kind of trials and temptations, um, faith and love, that, that we see that trials are for the purpose of testing our faith. And, and I'll show you a couple of Scriptures here. And that temptations then really are something that helps us to see our love or the lack of our love for God. So, as far as um, trials and testing, uh, somebody had already quoted it this morning. But James chapter one, verses two through four, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. So when we face trials, we're to be joyful in the trials, not because the trial is necessarily pleasant, but because we understand that God doesn't waste anything in bringing about maturity, completeness in our lives. The second one along that line that I wanted to read for you this morning was from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, these trials are bringing about this maturity, this completion, this this state of lacking nothing such that we would be um, found to receive praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the, 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 you see through the New Testament things like the, 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 the day of the Lord and the coming of the Lord and, you know, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. In this context, I'm pretty certain that it's speaking of the rapture, okay? So that when, when Jesus comes and claims his church up out of the world, in my understanding, before the tribulation period starts that we would stand and receive praise and glory. We would actually be raptured in the rapture of the church, not that we would be ashamed and find out, oh, my gosh, my faith was never genuine. My faith didn't persevere to this point. Now, we know that the rapture hasn't happened yet, and we know for 2,000 years people have been anticipating the imminent coming of Jesus to bring his church home. We shouldn't let that give us one moment of pause in standing firm in our faith, in walking in holiness and righteousness of the truth with the Lord, thinking that it might be five minutes from now and I can take a break for four minutes, get myself back in the game in the fifth minute and be raptured with the church. If you think that that's a reasonable thing, you should read the parables in the Gospels that speak to preparation. Jesus says things like, you don't know the day or the hour. He says, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. That if the guy whose house got robbed knew when the thief was coming, he'd have been ready. Like, okay, in that fifth minute I'll just prepare myself because I know when he's coming. Because you don't know, because we don't know, then we are to be prepared as if he was coming right now, every second of right now. And that's the, that's what the testing does. The trials, the test that we get through the trials is it helps to build us up, build up perseverance and endurance in us, build maturity and completion it also helps us to see that our faith is active. It's true, it's real, so that on the day when Jesus comes back for his church, we will actually be prepared to go up with him and not have to experience this dreadful time of tribulation. The second um, batch we talked about last week was about temptation. In James, again, chapter 1, now verses 13 through 15 Say this, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So look then the second scripture for that one, I'm sorry, that I wanted to share is 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. No temptation, remember now, we're not talking about trials, we're talking about temptations. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, our and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. So you'll find that uh, trials and temptations come from the same root word, but when they're translated, they're translated differently. Now, English and and Old Greek are different. They're translated differently because the context is different. Trials, God is in the middle of the trials. Temptations, anything that would lead a person to sin, he is not the author of those. And he's, he's allowing them, the Bible says he allows them because he's able to bring about good from everything. So he allows them, but he doesn't allow them to exceed a level that we're able to withstand and resist. And he always gives us a way out. Now, I don't know you know, specifically in any given situation what that way out is. My guess is that there's a verse associated with it, and if we can stand on that verse, we have the exit that we need from the, that temptation. But they're different. The trials and the temptations are different. One is for the testing and perfecting of our faith. The other is for us to be able to see our love for God or the lack of our love. And I won't go into a a ton of depth on that one, but but it's born out of the scriptures that teach us that obedience is the expression that God receives from us of loving him. And that in temptation, which comes from the world, it's attractive to our flesh, in temptation, what we're saying essentially is, Either I love you, Jesus, or I don't love you. When we give in to the temptation and and we partner, we connect ourselves to the world, we're disconnecting ourselves from the Lord, and we're saying, I love me, and I love the world, and I don't love you. There's no kind of love. There's no love for Jesus in that because he tells us that our flesh and his spirit are diametrically opposed to one another. There is no congruity. I think that's the right word. There's no connection where the flesh and the spirit make any agreement at all. If the flesh thinks anything, the spirit hates it. If the spirit uh, espouses anything, the flesh is against it. They're 100% opposed to each other. So when we feel ourselves in the place of temptation by lust, then the response is to resist it. When we feel ourselves in a trial, our our prayer then isn't to to exit the, the trial but to complete the trial. Because the trial is bringing about something in us. When we're dealing with a fleshly, um, lustful, I want to make sure I use the right words, um, temptation, the result is to deny it, to say no to it. And, And that's, I think, why Jesus says, he even uses the word worthy. You're not worthy of me. If your love and devotion, my love and devotion isn't so absolute for jesus that it makes everything else that i would love or be devoted to look look like hate not to be hate but to look like hate that i'm not worthy of him he, when he says to take up your cross daily to deny yourself that's what he's speaking about he's saying love me i love you you love me the way you love me is you deny that fleshly self pick up your cross and walk with me Oh, the other thing that I mentioned last week, I may have mentioned it before, but I don't remember. i just touch on it here. Love demands choice. If there's no opportunity to choose not love, then there's no opportunity to truly express love. That's why the tree was in the middle of the garden with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had to have the opportunity to choose to not love God in order to express their love for God. So every time they walked in the garden, they saw this beautiful tree with this awesome-looking fruit on it, and they said, nope, God said that I'm not to eat from that tree, and they went someplace else for their lunch. What they essentially were saying is, I love you, God. And when they ate from the tree, they said, I love me, not you, because I want to eat the, f- the fruit of that thing. I want it. And then uh, when I was praying, one time I asked God, I said, why did you leave my flesh? If you, If you created me as a new creation why in the world did you leave me this nasty flesh to deal with and as clear as i think i've ever felt like i heard the lord i heard the words it's your tree in the garden that if i don't have my flesh i don't have any opportunity to choose jesus so my flesh is that thing that's like the tree in the center of the garden and every time my flesh rises up to something that's contrary to the lord and i say no to it i'm saying i love you jesus All right, so then that will take us up to verse 13 in James chapter 1. Excuse me, we're actually at verse 16, but I need verse 13, 14, and 15 for context. So 13 through 15, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Let me tell you why I think the next part is coming. I have talked to so many people, professing Christians even, that say, hey, listen, you know, I do this and I do that. And and," I mean, I've even had these thoughts myself. I I think before I was a Christian, but God's got to be okay with it because he made me this way god's in charge of everything he's sovereign therefore the fact that i keep doing this and this and this again is because he's doing it and it's not my fault and i'm not responsible for it the very next words say do not be deceived and if you looked up do not and deceived you find a lot of good stuff in the new testament do not be deceived my beloved brethren every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So he wants God, through James, wants us to understand that you got this lustful thing that you're trying to decide, you know, is it okay or isn't it okay? Well, you know it's not okay, but you're trying to rationalize that it is okay. And he says, first, none of that comes from God. You don't have that from God. He's not moved by those things. He never uses those things to move anybody. Don't be deceived. That's not from God. What comes from God is only good and perfect. Perfect. So if in our lives there's anything that we have, and I think, as a matter of fact, I think I could say I'm almost certain that that would be true for any person, whether they're a believer or not, whether they've come to a saving knowledge of Jesus or not, that if there's anything good in their life, it's in their life because God gave it to them. Because his love is no greater for me than for someone who doesn't know Jesus. And the Bible says that his sunlight and his rain, like an agricultural um, metaphor, falls on the just and the wicked the same. If, if the saved guys farm and the wicked guys farm are together, they're both going to get rain and sunlight so the crops can grow because God loves them. It's really maybe in this life his, his only opportunity to bless them because if they've gone through their entire life and not chosen to love him, then they will s- spend eternity under his wrath paying for their sinful rebellion against him. But now he can bless them with the sun and with the rain. Um, So the things that come from God are good. If we have anything in our life that's good, every perfect thing, it comes from God. And it comes by the exercise of his will. There is no variation or shifting shadow in God. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. I've read this hundred times like I said. I still don't understand why that first fruits among his creatures is in there. So if I if I get a revelation, I'll come back and I'll share it with you. I don't know exactly I understand first fruits. I don't understand creatures. If he said among Adam or a man, I would think I would get it, but I don't understand because he used the words creatures, which sounds like squirrels and rabbits and dogs and camels and everything else. And I'm not sure what their end is supposed to be. In any case When it speaks to he, he has no variation or no shifting shadow, it, it's for us to understand that God is rock solid. He's not moved. So when it says don't be deceived like, oh, you know, it's okay because God tempted me in this way. No, God does not give bad things, and he's not going to change his mind and start to give bad things. And it's not going to be okay for us to submit ourselves to bad things. So he is absolutely light. In eternity, there won't be any streetlights. Jesus himself will emanate. His glory will emanate the light. There will, it will just be light. I don't think there will be any shadows. See, God can't cast a shadow because he's, he's light. Light can't make a shadow. So he has no shadow of turning. So if you think of like a sundial, you know, and, and it's 8 o'clock, it's 9 o'clock, it's 10 o'clock, as, as the sun moves, it casts a different shadow. But there's no different shadow from God because he's absolutely secure and firm in who he is and what is true, and he's never going to have a shadow. He won't have a shadow anyway, but he's never going to have a shadow that moves based upon anything. The sun can change its position. His shadow doesn't move. He doesn't have a shadow because he's rock solid. He doesn't have to evaluate whether he's right or wrong. He's absolutely right all the time. If you're saved or shall become saved. It's because of God's will that you be saved. Now, there's different schools of thought in the church as to whether that includes all of humanity or a subset of humanity that would be called the elect. That would be a Calvinist um, Calvinist perspective that only the elect will be saved. From our perspective, which if, if you care, you, you probably don't, is called Arminianism. There's a guy... Jacobus Arminius and then there's uh, John Calvin who had these different perspectives and different theologies rose up out of their perspectives. The, the, the dominant theology is Arminianism, which is where we would fall, that when God says that Jesus died for all, it means all, like everybody all. If, if you're a human being, he died for you versus the Calvinist perspective that says, no, there's, there's an elect... Subset of humanity that God has chosen by His sovereign will to save, and that they will come to salvation, even though they still have to do it the way the Bible says, they'll do it because His grace that comes from His will is irresistible, and they'll just submit themselves to His grace and they will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. That's not the all that I would be speaking of when I teach. The all that I would be speaking of is all of humanity. Okay? So if anybody is saved or should choose to get saved, by what jesus has done for them it's because it was god's will that they do that's borne out in john chapter six in two places where where jesus says nobody can come to the son unless they're drawn by the father so when when god places that anointing on a person that they can actually respond to the spiritual matter of the gospel then they can respond that doesn't mean that they will respond In, in a calvinist theology it would mean that they they have to because his will is irresistible in our perspective, that gives them the opportunity to respond to a spiritual matter, even though they don't yet have the Holy Spirit. And and generally, spiritual matters would be foolishness to them. That makes sense? Okay, so then, when he says, um, brought forth by the word of truth, it's interesting. This is one of the things that I've been wrestling with for the last month or so. If you read from 18, 118 through 25, which may actually be 225, I'm not sure, but in those, it can't be, those seven verses, you see James reference the word of truth, the word implanted, the word, and that's in the context of being a hearer of the word, and then you see it again in the context of being a doer of the word, and then finally you see the word referenced as the law of liberty. And I'm trying to understand, God, are, are all of these references mean the same thing, or do they mean different things? I think they mean different things. So I'm going to teach that as I learn it because I'm not positive about it, but I am pretty sure positive about the first one, the one that's in here, that we have been brought forth unto salvation by the word of truth. And the word of truth in this context is the gospel. So God has given a word, right? His son is the incarnate word, but he's given a word by which people can come into a saving relationship with him. And that word is the gospel. And remember, we started this whole thing off with the gospel is a fixed thing. It's not a, a thing that's like this and it's fuzzy around the edges. There's, there's a gospel that has the power to save. If you, if you subtract from the gospel any component of it, it doesn't have the power to save anymore. If you add to the gospel a requirement beyond what the Bible says is the gospel, it doesn't have the power to save anymore. The gospel is specific. Okay, that's the word of truth by which we were brought forth is the gospel. Um, and, and it's so funny. I, I've been reading this and I've got tons of resources to help me. It wasn't until this morning that I found these two verses. Ephesians one thirteen reads this way. In him, Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, or in, you know, in our case in James, the word of truth, to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Having so believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So here he connects the words, message or word of truth, with the gospel. And then in Colossians five, it's a broken sentence, but it works for the purpose we're trying to lay it out here. Colossians one five, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. So when you can find in James, where it seems to pretty clearly imply the gospel, And then you can find the same words in Ephesians and the same words in Colossians saying it is the gospel. I think we can be pretty confident that this word of truth is the actual gospel itself, okay? Okay. I honestly think trials, temptations, they come up all through the book of James, but in the context that I've been, seems like, pounding, the Lord has been pounding through me, I think it's done after this week, and we're going to move on. The thing that I guess I want to leave us with is that trials and temptations are all about love. Think of it this way. Trials and temptations are all about love. God is Father. The love of a father for his children are represented in trials and temptations. In trials because he uses them, he authors them, in temptations because he allows them, but he doesn't author them. The father's love is expressed in trials and temptations in the developing of character in his adopted children, right? There's no need to develop character in his begotten son. His character is absolute and it's perfect. It's, e- it's equal to, it's a perfect reflection of the father's character. But for us, an act of love by the father is to build and develop character, his character, the Lord's character in us, Trials and temptations, then, are a mechanism that he uses to express his love for us because he wants his children to possess his character. Trials and temptations are all about love in that the father's love expressed in fortifying faith to ultimately spend eternity with his adopted children. That's us, his adopted children. So in the testing of our faith, he's, he's fortifying faith in us he's helping us to see if faith is wavering a little bit by these tests Ultimately, ultimately because he loves us so much that he would allow us to experience these things such that on the day of the lord when christ comes back for his church this day we don't know when it's going to be that we would be found in faith uh second corinthians i want to say five thirteen. i think it's something 13. it doesn't matter it says examine yourself These are the ways we examine ourselves. Are we walking in faith? When our faith is tested, does it fail, does it fail, does it fail, does it fail? Or is it stressed and then we recover because of his grace and we we pass through that test and we grow in faith? He is testing our faith because he wants his children to be with him. It's an act of love on his part. Whoever it was that said... uh, the guy with the book that the hundred books you gave away that said man we should be praising god in every miserable situation in our life that struck me so hard because that's true we we look i don't even i won't even implicate you guys i look at some of the stuff that goes on in my life and i'm like lord but no if it's there and a loving father has allowed it to be there or placed it there it can only be for my very good so, I'm going to change the way I see. I mean, I have to a large extent, but not to that extent. I mean, the simplest things wait, wait till we get to talking about controlling your tongue. It's like God has got a noose on my tongue. And, and I don't always, when He pulls tight on that thing, I don't always res- respond correctly. But the silliest, not like, you know, say evil, mean things, but just the, the idle words that I'm going to have to give an account for, He's shown them to me in my thoughts and giving me a chance to just put them down before they find their way onto my tongue. And it's just incredible to me that it's like, Lord, oh, you know, but he wants me to be like Jesus. There's huge eternal benefit in godliness. He wants that for me. I want to submit to it. I want to stop whining about the red light. Teresa's like, amen, my goodness. (laughs) You know, the the slow guy driving in front of me. Thank you for that guy, Lord. (sighs) Lord. I praise you for that guy, Lord. But it's true. Fortifying faith. And somebody asked me about, like, hey, your church, do you teach that if somebody's got, and then they, they listed somebody they know, I'm sure, that's got whatever, if they died, then it's because they didn't have enough faith. I'm like, wow, there's a tripwire right there. And my answer was, well, yes and no, because the Bible teaches us, Your faith has made you well. Your faith has healed you. By your faith, you've been... So I know that faith has a function in it, but I can't say that every person that's sick and dies... Did so because they didn't have enough faith? I don't know the answer to that question, but I'm not going to bend to what the Bible says. So he is testing my faith a little bit in that conversation because that person might be evaluating come to church on the street. I'd love to have another person come to church on the street, but not if it means that they're going to come because I'm going to bend my conscience towards what the Word of God says. Testing of your faith. And here's one that you might find interesting. This is my last point here at the end because i want us to walk away with an understanding that that all of this is only a function of god's love that the father's love for his only begotten by defining developing and strengthening love in his begotten's bride is us so these temptations and trials i'm not sure i can still stand up and talk to you guys anymore i've been so comfortable in the stool they're for us, his adopted children. He loves us so much. But he's got this son, this begotten son, and he is procuring for himself a bride. Every time you share the gospel and somebody responds and the Holy Spirit moves in, the bride of Christ is is enlarged, is beautified, is added to. But he didn't want to hand his son this nasty bride. But he can't, right? That's part of the reason I asked you the question about um, glorification this morning, right? Ephesians tells us that that Jesus, who loves us, is working out every spot and wrinkle as he prepares us to be his glorious bride. But I can't see where the Bible seems to indicate that sometime between now and when I go to be with him, that all the spots and wrinkles are likely to be gone. So there's this process called glorification that will happen in the twinkle of an eye. So if if we happen to be here when the rapture comes, first those that are dead in Christ will rise. Their their dead bodies will be constituted into eternal bodies and they will in that instant be glorified. Next, those that are alive and remain will be caught up to the Lord and we will have physical existing bodies that will in that instant be glorified. And then all the spots and all the wrinkles are gone. So the point of this last point is that Part of what God's doing is because he loves his son begotten, Jesus, so much that he's using these things to develop for him a spotless and wrinkle-free awesome bride that's just going to honor him and glorify him all through all of eternity. All right. So you can pray what you want, but I think we're done with trials and temptations for a little while. The next bit, I think, is going to be very practical stuff about you know, controlling your tongue and and the anger of man does not uh, bring about the righteousness of God. You know, just kind of specific things that teach us how to live our lives as Christians. That said, Father, thank you so much for such a wonderful day today. Thank you for your presence. It's so great. I mean, I heard a word today from somebody in prayer, and it was seeking after the giver of the gifts and not just the gifts, Lord. And I'm afraid I might have been a little guilty of that. So we just seek after you. However you choose to manifest yourself, we do earnestly desire your gifts, but but mostly we earnestly desire to know you, to know you in every way that a person could know you, to surrender ourselves. As it says, uh, um, uh, John the Baptist, I must decrease that you might increase. So, Lord, we hope to decrease to the place of the fullness of Christ, that our relationship with you would be so awesome that we could be filled to the fullness of Christ. And ultimately, Lord, you're going to glorify us to the place where we will know as we are known. But between now and then, we want to just honor you and love you and just serve you and come to know you. And we pray that prayer in your very name. Amen.